Last time we spoke in length about the initial invasion of Thailand and Malaya, sprinkling in just a bit about the situation in Hong Kong. The Empire of Japan had launched simultaneous invasions of multiple places in what looks to be one of the most complex and incredible military operations ever performed. Now when Japan announced climb Mount Nitaka, one place in particular was of vital importance to invade, neutralize and occupy. The American-held Philippines was the largest thorn in the side of the Japanese Empire. The Philippines were located in one of the most strategic points in the Pacific, right between Japan and territories that held natural resources it required for its war machine. In order to secure those rich resource areas the Japanese sought, they would need to take out the Philippines first. Today's episode will begin the horrific story of the invasion of the Philippines as well as the attacks on Guam and Wake Island. Welcome back to the Pacific War Podcast week by week. I'm your dutiful host, Craig Watson. But before we can begin, I would like to remind you, this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of kings and generals over at YouTube. Perhaps you want to learn a bit more about the history of the Second World War? I recommend their episodes on German raiders of the Pacific during World War II. Of course, they have a wider collection of episodes on many historical events, so go give them a look over on YouTube. So please, subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue helping us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And if after all that you are still hungry for some history content, why don't you go over to my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel, over at YouTube, where I also have an episode on German Raiders, but of the Pacific during World War I. Kind of funny how both me and Kings and Generals tackled that same subject, but for different wars. Anyways, go give my channel a look. It would mean a lot to me. After the Russo-Japanese War of 1904-1905, to it seemed like the United States and the Empire of Japan were set on a course for war. Now, at the turn of the 20th century, the United States developed a series of color-coded war plans in case of an outbreak of war with just about any nation you can imagine. Let's say, what if Mexico gets out of line and attacks the United States? They had War Plan Green, which saw plans to defeat Mexican forces and establish a pro-American government in Mexico City. What if Germany, during World War I, attempted to take Caribbean islands owned by France? Well, they had War Plan Black to take on the Germans. Need an intervention in Cuba? Well, we got War Plan Tan. Here is a good one. What if the United Kingdom does something heinous and the United States needs to go to war with them? For that, we had the big War Plan Red, followed by its sub-war plans, Crimson for Canada, Ruby for India, Scarlet for Australia, Garnet for New Zealand, and Emerald for Ireland. So, as you can see, the United States pretty much was obsessed with taking on just about any adversary and, like any other military, made plans just in case. 
Well, one of these war plans is going to really come to the front line of this story, that of the Philippines. Around just after the Russo-Japanese War had concluded, War Plan Orange was commenced by Theodore Roosevelt in case of an outbreak of war with the Empire of Japan. It would have three phases. Phase number one, the United States expected the loss of its lightly defended outposts south and west of Japan, such as the Philippines, Guam, and Wake Island. The United States knew it could not hope to defend these outposts successfully. Thus, the war plan envisioned the concentration of the United States Navy at their home ports so that these forces could be deployed to the Pacific on short notice. Phase number two would see the United States utilize this superior naval and air power to advance against Japanese-occupied islands to establish supply routes and bases. Due to the United States' production power, the U.S. anticipated that the Philippines could be retaken from Japan in about two to three years. Phase three would be the United States utilizing the islands it had acquired to launch attacks on the Japanese home islands while simultaneously choking its trade with a naval blockade. So as you can see, right from the turn of the century, America pretty much had the plan that would actually unfold during the Pacific War. Now after World War I, the United States disarmed itself quite a bit, while Japan had strengthened her position by taking the Marianas, the Carolines, and the Marshall Islands from the Empire of Germany. In order to weaken Japan, the United States and Britain pushed the Washington Naval Treaty of 1922 which would be followed up later by the London Naval Treaty. The United States also managed to get the Anglo-Japanese Alliance Treaty to not get renewed to further the cause of weakening the Empire of Japan. Now, War Plan Orange would undergo a dozen or so revisals all the way up to the start of the Pacific War. By the 1930s, the American military planners knew that the Philippines would be lost early on in a war against Japan. Thus, War Plan Orange became more and more built around the concept of establishing a defense of the Philippines that would eventually lose, but would later be liberated by the U.S. Pacific Navy performing an island-hopping campaign. So we now come to the year 1941, War Plan Orange undergoes its latest revisal in April, now named War Plan Orange 3. The plan assumed that the Japanese would attack without a declaration of war and with less than 48 hours warning, so it would be impossible for the United States to provide reinforcements to a place like the Philippines. Thus, the Philippines' defense would be conducted entirely by the military and naval forces already positioned there. Based on an analysis of the Japanese capabilities, they believed the enemy would send an expeditionary force of around 100,000 men to capture Manila, its harbor, and occupy the islands. Thus, the garrison of the Philippines could expect little to no warning. The attack would most likely come during the dry season, shortly after rice crops were harvested in December or possibly January. The main attack would be against Luzon, 
and they could expect a strong ground force with heavy air and heavy naval support. They would probably land in multiple places simultaneously in order to spread thin the defending forces and to ensure at least one landing is successful. So many of these landings would be feints. Thus, under Warplan Orange 3, the mission of the Philippine garrison was to hold the entrance to Manila Bay and deny its use to the Japanese. There was no intention that U.S. forces should fight anywhere else but central Luzon. Remember that specific sentence, as it's going to be extremely crucial to the story. The United States forces would constitute an initial protective force and have the main task of preventing the enemy landings on Luzon. Failing in this, they were to defeat those forces which succeeded in their landings. If despite all of these attempts, the enemy was successful, the initial protective force was to engage in delaying actions, but not at the expense of the primary mission, that being the defense of Manila Bay. Every attempt was to be made to hold back the Japanese advance while withdrawing to the Bataan Peninsula. Another key component of this strategy was to make sure that the delaying actions gave enough time to move all the war materials required to hold Bataan for as long as possible. Thus, Bataan was recognized as the key to the control of Manila Bay and was to be defended to the last extremity. Estimates ranged quite a bit for how long this defense could possibly hold out, but many thought around six months, upon which the United States Pacific Fleet may have fought a decisive naval battle, and won, and could perhaps reinforce the Philippines. Just about no one in the high military believed this was possible. It was estimated that it would take the United States Pacific Fleet over two years to fight its way across the Pacific. Thus, the entire plan assumed the Philippines would fall in around six months. Now, as we all know, the year 1941 saw increased tensions between Japan and the United States, not to mention Britain and the Netherlands. Well, on July the 26th of 1941, a certain general was brought out of retirement by the United States War Department and named commander of the United States Army Forces in the Far East. That man was the infamous General Douglas MacArthur. Douglas MacArthur was born January the 26th of 1880 at Little Rock Barracks in Little Rock, Arkansas. His father's name was Arthur MacArthur Jr. and his mom, Mary Pickney Hardy MacArthur. The family lived on a succession of army posts in the American Old West where Douglas, according to himself, states, Learnt to ride and shoot even before I could read or write. Indeed, almost before I could walk and talk. That quote comes courtesy of reminiscence of General of the Army Douglas MacArthur by Douglas MacArthur. And it is at this point I would like the audience to get used to the idea of Douglas MacArthur himself referring to himself in the third person. Now, Douglas MacArthur was a military brat son of Arthur MacArthur Jr., 
who held a very impressive military career. He had served in the Union Army during the American Civil War, fought in the Indian-American Wars, then in the Spanish-American War, and eventually became the Governor General of the Philippines. Thus, the stage was all set out for Douglas MacArthur to distinguish himself with an extensive military career as well. He would take part in the Philippine-American War, the Mexican Revolution, World War I, where he really made a name for himself, and after our story of World War II, he would go on to fight during the Korean War. He received an incredible amount of military service awards and became the youngest U.S. Major General in 1925 at the age of 44. Now let's just get right into it. If you ask a lot of modern-day historians about Douglas MacArthur, they would most likely argue that most of his accomplishments were not based on merit alone. Douglas MacArthur had what is known in the military as a helicopter mom. A helicopter mom, also known as a cosseting parent, is one who pays extremely close attention to their child's experiences and problems and often intervenes on their behalf. I.e., Dougie was a huge mama's boy. Oh my god, if I could tell half the stories I've read about this guy and his mother. She was nicknamed Pinky and followed him to every military station he served, literally living with him most of the time. She used her influence as the wife of Commanding General Arthur MacArthur Jr. to make sure that her son received the kinds of positions and postings that would make sure he moved on ahead. Indeed, MacArthur seemed to go from glory to glory, from superintendent at West Point to major general in the Philippines, bringing his mother along straight to Manila. To give a real-life example of today, just imagine a mom who shows up to her child's school demanding the very best for her boy and making a hell of a scene with the administration to make sure whatever she needs is done. But unfortunately, she would die in 1935, which hurt Douglas MacArthur tremendously. That same year, Douglas MacArthur was hired by his personal friend, Manuel Quezon, the president of the Philippines, to supervise the creation of a new Philippine army. And on December the 31st of 1937, MacArthur officially retired from the United States Army, ceasing to represent the United States, but he did continue as Quezon's advisor in a civilian capacity. Now, what I really want to talk about briefly, mind you, is the character of Douglas MacArthur. He has been called before America's Caesar, and that makes perfect sense given his egomania. Now, Douglas MacArthur was indeed brilliant, but he was also the first person to tell you that, and he made sure that you knew that. He was also incapable of admitting his own errors or taking any responsibility when things went wrong. President Eisenhower said once of MacArthur, quote, He had an obsession that a high commander must protect his image at all costs and must never admit his wrongs. President Eisenhower also said, Douglas could never see a son 
or even a moon for that matter, in the heavens as long as he was the sun. End of quote. In the early 1930s, he was noted to sit at his desk in Washington wearing a Japanese kimono, cooling himself with an oriental fan, smoking cigarettes out of a jeweled cigarette holder. It was also around this time he began to refer to himself in the third person and hired a public relations staff to promote his image to the American people. George Marshall said of this situation, quote, You don't mean his staff, you mean his court. End of quote. He said this because MacArthur literally just hired a staff around him that would help glorify his image. MacArthur would also write in grandiose, self-glorifying prose, attributing much of the United States Army's success to himself, often emphasizing the many awards he received throughout his career, which, to be honest, were, were many. Douglas MacArthur is quite a polarizing figure. Here is a small piece of history about Dougie before the war, an event called the Bonus Army Situation. In 1932, thousands of World War I veterans gathered in Washington with their families to insist that the government pay them bonuses. These bonuses were scheduled to be paid later on in 1945, but the Great Depression had left many veterans suffering and in need of that income. Well, all of this gathering became a real problem, and President Hoover was forced to intervene, so he ordered the army with the task of dispersing the protesters. Well, Douglas MacArthur saw these people, which we will call the bonus army at this point, as communist conspirators, rather than a peaceful group of struggling veterans. And it was Douglas MacArthur who led the army and drove out the demonstrators, destroying their encampments using tanks and tear gas. The destruction of the protesters' tents violated explicit orders from President Hoover, and the operation resulted in several injuries and one death. It eventually became quite clear there was no communist conspiracy here, and the Bonus Army were really just struggling veterans. Douglas MacArthur, however, continued to insist otherwise. In his memoir that we had already mentioned, Reminiscence of General of the Army Douglas MacArthur by Douglas MacArthur, he asserts, quote, The movement was actually far deeper and more dangerous than an effort to secure funds. The communists hoped to incite revolutionary action. End of quote. The fact that he held these views at that time is somewhat odd. That he defended himself decades later is clearly incorrect and honestly irrational. And the reason why I gave this example is because it makes crystal clear the case that Douglas MacArthur was truly unable to admit errors on his part. The man simply could not bring himself to tarnish his own perceived image as this kind of infallible commander. Now we are going to be spending a lot of time with Douglas MacArthur throughout the Pacific War series, 
but I just wanted to give you a taste of the man before we start this story. I do so because his character really plays out when you look at some of the decisions he makes, and hell, when kings and generals began to show me their plans for this entire series, Dougie was one of my favorite figures to tackle first. And thus I will leave you with this if you still need something to visualize the man. He was noted to speak in Shakespearean-like terms, always referring to himself in the third person. Enough to be said right there. So, back to the story, we mentioned how War Plan Orange 3 was America's official plan going into this war, but it was also superseded by another plan. The Rainbow Plans were formed when the United States realized it was facing a possibility of war on multiple fronts against a possible coalition of enemies. Of these war plans was Rainbow Plan 5, which assumed the United States would have Britain and France as an ally and would be facing off against what is the Axis. One major component that came about was during 1941 when Sir Winston Churchill and President Roosevelt had met at the Arcadia Conference and made a very large decision about the war. If the war was to come, the United States would adhere to a policy called the Europe First Strategy. This meant that the United States would devote most of its resources to defeat Nazi Germany before allocating them to the threat of Japan. Keep this one in mind, as Douglas MacArthur was really unhappy with this decision. So in 1941, just before the outbreak of the Pacific War, the Philippines had American forces and Filipino forces with Douglas MacArthur in command. Before coming out of retirement, Douglas MacArthur had been helping build up the Philippines' military. Now, doing so, he became an expert on the capabilities of that said Philippine force. So when Douglas MacArthur was brought out of retirement, he soon began a campaign to persuade Washington to revise the War Plan Orange 3 and Rainbow Plan 5, because he believed the Philippines could be defended and should not be simply sacrificed which was the essence of the plans. He claimed if Washington gave him some more U.S. troops and a sizable force of B-17 Flying Fortress heavy bombers, all this alongside what he claimed to be 10 fully trained and fully equipped Philippine Army divisions across the nine major islands of the Philippine archipelago, he could indeed save the Philippines from a Japanese invasion. He boasted that he would stop the Japanese on the beaches. What he neglected to tell Washington was that the bulk of this Philippine army existed only on paper. In reality, they lacked training and equipment. Nonetheless, Washington was inspired by MacArthur's optimism and made some amendments to Rainbow Plan 5 on November 19th of 1941. These amendments were that MacArthur was going to get a sizable force of B-17 flying fortresses, but with the explicit order that if war was to break out, that Far East Air Force was to attack any Japanese forces and installations within their range, such as the Japanese air bases on Formosa. MacArthur was able to make a limited defense of the Philippine Islands, but not at the cost of War Plan Orange 3. 
So Douglas MacArthur had a force of 22,532 men, including one fully American regiment, the 31st, three well-trained regiments of Philippine scouts, two tank battalions, and 10 inexperienced Philippine divisions. Now these said Philippine divisions had thousands of troops, but they lacked modern weapons, adequate training, and valuable experience, something MacArthur set out to correct from the get-go. But the task of doing so was going to take quite a few months, time he would never receive. For the Far East Air Force, he would have 218 aircraft, 35 B-17 flying fortresses, with many more supposed to be shipped over, 105 Curtis P-40 Warhawks, 8 North American A-27s, 26 P-35s, 18 B-18s, 12 P-26 P-shooters, and 11 O-52 Owls. To command the Air Force, he would have Major General Louis Brereton. Brereton is an interesting figure. He was one of the first military pilots of the United States Army, and seen as quite a hedonistic man by his critics during the day, such as Omar Bradley, who really hated his guts. Apparently, Brereton liked to refer to himself in the third person. So, well, that's great. Now there's two of these narcissistic types working together. Despite all that, he was noted to be an effective air commander, and a very reliable one. He was also being backed up by the Philippine Air Corps, which had six squadrons of rather obsolete aircraft. 48 P-35s, 12 Beowing P-26s, 2 Beowing P-12s, 3 Martin B-10Bs, and 1 Keystone B-3A. Now for the naval forces, there was a rather old Asiatic fleet commanded by Admiral Thomas Hart. He would have the cruiser USS Houston as his flagship, alongside the two light cruisers, the USS Marblehead and Boise. He also had some World War I era destroyers and a rather large squadron of over 29 submarines. Now Admiral Hart was not only responsible for the defense of the Philippines, he also had to defend Guam while another place like Wake Island was under the jurisdiction of Admiral Husband Kimmel. In July of 1941, after the Japanese occupation of southern Indochina, the United States Army Forces in the Far East was formed, that is, USAF, including both American and Filipino forces in the region, and it was going to be Lieutenant General Douglas MacArthur as its commander-in-chief. Over in Guam, the U.S. spared few defenses, as it did not believe much could be done. Captain George McMillan had 271 naval personnel, 153 marines, and 246 volunteers of the Guam Insular Force Guard. Over in Wake, Husband Kimmel ordered the construction of naval base facilities to turn the island into a stronghold. Protecting it was the 1st Defense Battalion of 422 Marine units. They would be reinforced by 12 F-4F Wildcat fighters. So now we have talked all about the Americans' preparations, but what about the Japanese? The Japanese were somewhat limited by their ongoing war in China, and the attacks that were commencing against the British and Dutch holdings simultaneously. 
they could count on two divisions and a brigade for their offensives against the American holdings in the Pacific. This would mean a lot of the hard work would have to be carried on by the IJN and their Special Naval Landing Force, basically Japan's version of U.S. Marines. For the Philippines, this would be the case. The invasion would commence with a massive airstrike to neutralize the American Air Forces at airfields Iba, Clark, Nielsen, Nichols, and Del Carmen. For the invasion to work, they would require air superiority. They also needed to execute several amphibious invasions against the northern airfields at Batan Island, Vigan, Apari, and Legazpi, which would allow them to stage another airstrike on Del Monte. Once the air superiority was assured, then they would launch their main amphibious assault against Luzon, and Mindanao, and Davao. Once those beachheads were secured, then they would advance on San Fernando, Liganyan, Manila, Davao, Caganyan de Oro, Jolo, Lete, and Corregidor Island. The 14th Army was tasked with invading the Philippines under the command of Lieutenant General Homa Masaharu. Homa was an amateur playwright and painter, earning the nickname Poet General. He was also the leader of the pro-British American minority of the IJA. He was considered a cultured man by his colleagues. He had spent eight years with the British, including military service in France during 1918 with the British Expeditionary Force, where he was awarded a military cross. He had developed a deep respect and understanding of the West. Thus, he was sent as a military attaché to Britain in the 1930s, where his proficiency in the English language became quite an asset. He proved to be a capable commander during the China War, and famously protested publicly after the fall of Nanking, quote, Unless peace is achieved, immediately it will be disastrous. End of quote. For stating this, he was removed from the front lines and reassigned to become Commander-in-Chief of the Taiwan Army District from 1940 to 1941. Homa is a bit of an oddity when compared to other IGA commanders. As we will see, he will get a lot of flack from his superiors for perhaps having a kinder touch towards the enemy. He was nicknamed Poet General, after all. His 14th Army would be backed up by the 5th Army Air Force, led by Lieutenant General Obata Hideyoshi, consisting of 183 short-range aircraft. Now I'm going to take this chance to list a bunch of these aircraft and their associated nicknames, just so in the future you might have a chance at understanding what I'm talking about. It will be long and intensive, I do apologize. So Hideyoshi had one Tachikawa Ki-9 codenamed Spruce, nine Mitsubishi Ki-15 codenamed Babs, 18 Mitsubishi Ki-21 codenamed Sally's, 72 Nakajima Ki-27 codenamed Nate's, 31 Mitsubishi Ki-30 codenamed Anne's, 10 Tachikawa Ki-36 codenamed Ida's, 2 Mitsubishi Ki-46 codenamed Dinas, 27 Kawasaki Ki-48 codenamed Lilies, 
and 13 Mitsubishi KI-51 codenamed Sonyas. You really gotta love those nicknames the Allies came up with. There was also going to be the Third Fleet under Vice Admiral Takahashi Ibo, who would support them with 5 heavy and 5 light cruisers, 29 destroyers, and 358 long-range aircraft of the 11th Air Fleet. This air fleet consisted of 109 Mitsubishi G4M1 codenamed Bettys, 48 Mitsubishi G3M2 codenamed Nels, 26 Kawanishi H6K4 codenamed Mavis, 26 Mitsubishi A5M codenamed Clothes, 107 Mitsubishi A6M2 codenamed Zeros, 25 Mitsubishi L3Y1 codenamed Ricos, and 17 Mitsubishi KI-15 codenamed Babs. I really apologize for putting you through that long list of aircraft, but I thought it would be important to give you all those nicknames that the aircraft had, so that, you know, at any point I might be saying, oh look, there's like clothes in the air, you might have an idea of what I'm actually talking about. Now, Takashi's role in the Philippines would be to hunt down and destroy the U.S. Asiatic fleet, cover and support the naval landings, and to protect the troop convoys. Meanwhile, the 4th Fleet commanded by Vice Admiral Inoue Shigeyoshi was given the task of invading the island of Wake and Guam. For Wake, Inoue planned to conduct three days of aerial bombardment followed by amphibious assaults on Wilkie's Island and Wake proper. His invasion force would have three cruisers, six destroyers, two armed merchantmen, and three submarines. They also would have 34 NAL bombers of the 24th Air Flotilla. All of this would support the sixth base force of 450 Marines. Inoue had planned to occupy the Gilbert Islands and conduct bombardments of the Howland and Baker Islands as well. For the assault on Guam, Major General Hori Tomitaro would have 4,886 men, 370 marines, and some naval cruisers. Now we had mentioned before, the US broke many of the Japanese codes and were intercepting a lot of their signal traffic. On November the 27th, a lot of the signal traffic suggested war might be imminent, thus the U.S. Army Chief of Staff, General George C. Marshall, sent a message to all commands, including the Philippines, stating, quote, Japanese future action unpredictable, but hostile action possible at any moment. If hostilities cannot, repeat, cannot be avoided. The United States desires that Japan commit the first overt act. This policy should not, repeat, not, be construed as restricting you to a course of action that might jeopardize your defenses. Should hostilities occur, you will carry out the tasks assigned in Rainbow Plan 5, so far as they pertain to Japan. End of quote. Despite the fact the Philippines was regarded as the most likely primary target in the event of a war with Japan, 
Douglas MacArthur took no significant steps to place his command on full war alert. General Douglas MacArthur was preparing to depart on an overseas liaison mission when General Brereton warned him that the B-17 bombers at Clark Field were within range of Japanese bombers from Formosa. Brereton proposed moving the B-17s to the more southern airbase on the island of Mindanao, to which MacArthur agreed. Yet, despite this, 17 of the 35 B-17s would still be sitting at Clark Field by December the 8th. So by December the 3rd, Douglas MacArthur positioned his forces in case of a Japanese attack. He did not abide by War Plan Orange 3, which was still the official policy. Instead, he implemented his own plan. Based on what he called active defense, he wanted to defeat the Japanese on all the beaches before they could establish footholds. Thus, he established three main defense forces. One, the Northern Luzon Force, commanded by Major General Jonathan Wainwright. One in Southern Luzon, commanded by Major General George Parker Jr. And one in Visayan Mindanao, commanded by Brigadier General William Sharp. Then, Douglas MacArthur dispersed his troops with all the war equipment widely and thinly across all nine of the major Philippine islands, and in doing so, breached one of the cardinal rules of military tactics. He seemed to be under the belief the Japanese would not attack the Philippines before April of 1942, and had no realistic plan to defend all of these islands if the Japanese attack had come earlier. His decision to place so many men across so many areas meant all the vital war equipment was scattered with these units, and therefore would be nearly impossible to move to Bataan effectively if the Japanese attacked. Now remember, War Plan Orange 3 called for a massive delaying action to get all of the forces to Bataan to hold out. Thus, it was imperative to have the war materials transported there as the forces delayed the Japanese. The major issue with what Douglas MacArthur had done was with so many forces all over the place with all of that war material, what should have taken just a few days to move, that being all the war material, to Bataan, now would take weeks if they were even lucky enough because imagine how difficult this is all going to be under heavy IGA advances. Another major fallacy MacArthur had was the belief that Admiral Hart's fleet, combined with his air forces, would be capable of destroying any inbound IGN warships and transports. This all was pretty delusional, as Rainbow Plan 5's policy was for Admiral Hart to take most of the fleet away from the Philippines if attacked and General Douglas MacArthur was very well aware of this. Even if he kept it around, it was an incredible overestimate of his fleet's capabilities to thwart the IGN forces that would be attacking the Philippines, to be sure. On December the 8th, Homa's forces departed from Hajima en route to Guam 
and the Philippines. At the same time Pearl Harbor was attacked, Japanese aircraft were scheduled to take off from Formosa at 2.30 a.m. on December the 8th to take out the airfields in the Philippines. Do remember there is a time zone difference. However, at 2.30 a.m., a thick fog enveloped over Formosa. Hours went by with no sign of the fog lifting. Senior Japanese commanders were beginning to freak out. The Americans most likely were alerted now by the attack on Pearl Harbor. They could strike Formosa at any minute. This was a catastrophe. Had all their plans ultimately failed because of Mother Nature? Now we're about to talk about one of the most infamous stories of the early Pacific War. It's also one that's gone under the historic microscope, to say the least. A tale of, she said, he said, if you were. So Pearl Harbor was attacked at 2.30 a.m. And at 3 a.m. this was reported to Manila. Remember, we're uh, talking in Philippine time right now. The news was received by the HQ in the Philippines. MacArthur and Hart were informed by 3 a.m. and at 3.40 a.m. Brigadier Leonard T. Garou, Chief of the Army's War Plans Division, telephoned MacArthur from Washington to confirm the Pearl Harbor attack was done by the Empire of Japan. And he said to MacArthur, quote, Wouldn't be surprised if you get an attack there in the near future. End of quote. Brereton got the news at 4 a.m. from MacArthur's Chief of Staff, Lieutenant Colonel Richard Sutherland, and immediately placed the Air Force on war alert. Many of the pilots returned to their air bases from a lavish party that occurred the night before at Douglas MacArthur's hotel. Now remember, the command had been given on November the 27th by George Marshall to enact Rainbow Plan 5 if the Japanese attacked. Well, they had attacked. So what did Douglas MacArthur do? To brutally sum up what is decades of historic investigation, we are talking JFK assassination type stuff here. To brutally sum it up, Douglas MacArthur did nothing. At 5 a.m., Brereton asked MacArthur permission to bomb Formosa in accordance with Rainbow Plan 5, but he was denied access to MacArthur by Sutherland. While waiting to see MacArthur, Brereton was informed by Admiral Hart that Japanese carrier aircraft had bombed the U.S. seaplane tender William B. Preston in Davao Bay on the southern Philippine island of Mindanao. Well, they certainly were under attack. Brereton immediately insisted to Sutherland he must see MacArthur, or that Sutherland must give him permission to bomb Formosa immediately. Sutherland responded that bombing Formosa should not take place until a preliminary photo reconnaissance mission was done to figure out what exactly they were going to bomb on Formosa. At 5.30 a.m., MacArthur received a cable from Washington ordering him to execute Rainbow Plan 5 at once. Yet, MacArthur seemingly still did nothing. At 6.15 a.m., MacArthur was informed by Admiral Hart 
that the Japanese carriers had bombed the American seaplane tender William B. Preston in Davao Bay on Mindanao. Thus, if there was any reason to doubt Japan had done the first overt action, there could be no more disputing it. At 7.15 a.m., Brereton asked permission to bomb Formosa again, and Sutherland responded, quote, MacArthur said no. We must not make the first overt act. Your role is defensive for the time being. End of quote. At 8 a.m., General Henry H. Arnold called Brereton from Washington, warning him not to let his planes be attacked on the ground. So Brereton began ordering his aircraft to circle the airfields by 8.30 a.m. At 9.25 a.m., Brereton was informed that the Japanese bombers had now attacked the Tugagaro field at Yusef Summer HQ at Baguio. Brereton telephoned Sutherland, asking permission yet again to bomb Formosa, and Sutherland refused yet again. At 9.40 a.m., Sutherland told Brereton to send a photo reconnaissance flight over Formosa, and if they identified any targets, a bombing raid would be approved by the afternoon. At 10.14 a.m., MacArthur finally approved a bombing attack on Formosa. By 10.30 a.m., Brereton ordered all of his aircraft to begin landing so that they could refuel and arm themselves with ground-hitting bombs that they required. The anticipated time for the aircraft to launch for the attack on Formosa was 2 p.m. So please let that all sink in. From around 4 a.m. to 10 a.m., Douglas MacArthur, for some reason, did nothing while seemingly hiding from any of his own staff. You might be asking yourself, why would he do this? Trust me, it's the million dollar question when it came to the endless amount of investigations into this. Many historians argue that Douglas MacArthur's personal 40-year friendship with President Quezon had a lot to do with what occurred. President Quezon had visited Tokyo in 1938, where allegedly Japanese officials convinced him that Japan had no aggressive intentions towards the Philippines and only wanted trade. The Philippines were also approaching independent status, and Quezon naively believed that Japan might not invade them. Indeed, without its consent, the Philippines had been included in Japan's Greater East Asia co-prosperity sphere, giving Quezon some reason to believe his nation might be spared. In 1962, MacArthur wrote to historians Paul S. Burtness and Warren U. Ober, quote, it was hoped that the Japanese would not attempt invasion of the Philippines in view of its approaching independent status. End of quote. Being the leader of his nation, Quezon was trying to avoid thousands of Filipino deaths and untold destruction. Quezon knew if the United States sent a bombing mission against Formosa, the chance of Japan simply leaving the Philippines alone, well, that was lost. When Quezon received the news about Pearl Harbor, he began pleading with MacArthur to not attack Japan until it was absolutely apparent Japan was going to invade the Philippines. 
So why else might MacArthur defer to Quezon? MacArthur commanded the U.S. forces, yes, but did not necessarily command the 130,000 Filipino forces. His control over them relied on Quezon's unequivocal support, so maybe it was a bit of blackmailing. Hmm. To just add some conspiracy-like flavor to all of this, later, during the Battle of the Philippines, MacArthur would pester Quezon for rewards for his service in the Philippines. Quezon was terminally ill and in no fit state to resist MacArthur, so he granted him $500,000 from the Philippine treasury on Corregidor. Now that is all alleged, folks. Uh, a lot of people and a lot of historians would say this was a gift given to him freely by Quezon, mind you. But nonetheless, a lot of important people at the time would turn a blind eye to this. The entire story is a bit of a mystery. Needless to say, if Douglas MacArthur had given Brereton permission to launch when he should have, the Japanese would have been caught with their pants down on Formosa. Meanwhile, at Wake Island, the American defenders were informed of the Pearl Harbor attack around 6 a.m. and quickly rushed to get their defenses together. Four Wildcats were launched to patrol Wake skies. 34 Japanese bombers left Roy Island to hit Wake, others from Saipan to hit Guam, and from the Marshall Islands to hit Nauru, Howland, Baker, and the Gilbert Islands. At around 7 a.m. on Formosa, the Japanese aircraft had finally launched, having been delayed over six hours. As the pilots took off, they were stricken with fear that at any moment they would see B-17s flying overhead to bomb the hell out of them and the airfield. Over 196 aircraft were on their way to Luzon, and from the northwest coast of Luzon, reports began to spread of the incoming aircraft. Colonel Alexander Campbell, Brereton's aircraft warning officer, tried to make sense of all the conflicting reports he was getting and concluded that one group of aircraft was heading for Manila and several for Clark Field. He sent a telegram at 11.45 a.m. to Clark Field, but the radio operator was having lunch. You ever get that feeling things are just destined to happen? By 12.10 p.m., all the fighter pilots on Luzon were up in the air on alert except for those at Clark Field. Not a single fighter plane was flying over all those parked B-17s that were all lined up on that airfield. At 12.35, 27 Japanese high-level bombers saw the large glittering B-17s in the bright sun. Behind them was 27 more bombers and over 35 Zero fighters. At the edge of the field, New Mexico National Guardsmen were eating lunch, and Sergeant Dwayne Davis said out loud, Here comes the Navy. Then someone else said, Why are they dropping tinfoil? Then a third person screamed, That's not tinfoil, those are goddamn Japs. Men raced for their P-40s, 
trying to launch to intercept as the air siren shrieked. The high-level bombers began to form a V, unleashing strings of bombs. For many of the ground crew, it was the first time they used their anti-aircraft guns. They watched their bursts explode far below the targets. The bombs rippled across the airfield and surrounding trenches. Then all at once, there was nothing to shoot at. The bombers had flown right over and their payloads were dropped. There was a sudden silence, like a jolt. Corporal Durwood Brooks walked towards the flight line in a daze. He saw bodies and limbs scattered everywhere. As he walked, he saw a friend, a Polish boy of 19, in a slit trench. By some freak accident, an explosive bullet had blown him up like a balloon. He looked almost transparent. Men began emerging from the trenches like sleepwalkers, momentarily numb to the groans of the wounded. The buildings were ablaze, and dark smoke churned from oil dumps across the field. By a miracle, a few B-17s were left untouched. Then everyone heard the roar of engines. 35 Zero fighters began to dive and strafe the B-17s. These men on the ground were all assured by their commanders there was no such thing as a good Japanese fighter plane. One B-17 exploded as tracers ignited its gas tank. Black clouds of smoke ran up. Men were cut to pieces by strafing fire. Only three B-17s remained. Clark's field was obliterated. Fighter pilot Don Steele said of the site, quote, There was beautiful Clark Field, all in flames. Every building on the aerodrome was on fire. Large columns of smoke rising 18,000 feet. Sleek and shining B-17s that we were so proud of and had just received from the States were all sitting on the ground, blazing. End of quote. In a dogfight over Clark Field, six P-40s managed to intercept the incoming Japanese and claimed three kills. Two of the United States pilots were killed, including one Lieutenant Herbert Ellis, who had claimed two of the kills. Having been hit and set on fire, Ellis bailed out of his plane and was gunned down as he parachuted. The air war with Japan was not going to be a gentleman's affair. Simultaneously, Iba Airfield was hit by 54 Betty bombers. All but four of the P-40 squadrons were shot on the field. They had been caught while landing. Similar to Clark Field, the buildings were lit on fire. All the aircraft destroyed on the ground or in the air by the Zero fighters. When the Zeros followed up the bombing by strafing the grounded aircraft, they were met by 12 P-40s, but the P-40s were simply no match. By that afternoon, half of the Far East Air Force were completely destroyed. The Japanese had gained air superiority for their invasion. Over on Formosa, the Japanese soldiers waited with gas masks on, expecting B-17s to rain gas attacks upon them. It never came.
Douglas MacArthur's biographer described what Douglas MacArthur looked like when he found out. He said, quote, His mental condition at this time was verging catatonic. He looked gray, ill, and exhausted. End of quote. Douglas MacArthur would state after the war, when being accused of failing to obey orders, i.e. Rainbow Plan 5, quote, The United States desired that Japan commit the first overt act. My orders were explicit not to initiate hostilities against the Japanese. End of quote. This, of course, is a ridiculous defense. As I have explained, Douglas MacArthur would never accept his own errors. In fact, he would also go on blaming Major General Brereton for the loss of the Far East Air Force on the ground. Over at Wake Island, 36 Japanese medium bombers managed to slip past the American patrols and bombed the airfields, destroying eight Wildcats on the ground, and they sunk the Nisqually. They also hit the Army camps, defense, seaplane facilities, and made a safe return back to the Marshall Islands. 23 people were killed with 11 wounded, but the primary target, the Marine garrisons, were left intact. Guam was notified about the Pearl Harbor attack at around 4.45 a.m., and by 8.27 a.m., Japanese land-based aircraft from Saipan attacked their marine barracks, the Pitti Naval Yard, the Libagon radio station, the Standard Oil Company there, and the Pan American Hotel. The minesweeper USS Penguin was sunk, but managed to shoot down a single Japanese bomber. The air raids continued over the island from morning into afternoon, only stopping around 5 p.m. One officer was killed, with several men wounded. It was kind of like a second Pearl Harbor. In one day, two of the three most powerful deterrents to Japan had been thwarted. The Pacific Fleet, MacArthur's B-17 Strike Force, and Britain's Force Z. Two troop ships landed 490 Japanese Marines on Bataan Island, and they took control of its small airfield with ease. And uh, just to eliminate some confusion, Bataan Island is not uh, part of the Bataan Peninsula. These are completely different things. Admiral Hart executed Rainbow Plan 5 and ordered the Asiatic fleet to withdraw and join the British and Dutch forces over in Borneo. Thirteen dive bombers and nine fighters began to bomb and strafe Davio. Fifty-four bombers laid waste to Cavite. In the words of Lieutenant John Buckley, quote, They flattened Cavite Navy Yard. There isn't any other word. Here was the only American naval base in the Orient beyond Pearl Harbor, pounded into bloody rubbish. End of quote. 27 bombers and 36 fighters hit Nielsen, 18 fighters strafed Nichols, and other bombers struck at Manila. Over the next few days, the only remaining aircraft was a handful of P-40s and the B-17s that had been moved south before the attack. 
Douglas MacArthur was left with no naval forces or air forces to defend the Philippines. All he could count on were his ground forces. Both Wake and Guam were hit again on December the 9th, but this time, they were prepared. At Wake, the civilian hospital and Pan Am Air Facility were destroyed, but two Japanese bombers were shot down by the Wildcats. At Guam, nine Japanese bombers hit the same targets as they did on December the 8th, but also hit the government house in Agana and a few villages. On December the 10th, at around 2 a.m., 370 Japanese Marines landed on Dunkes Beach, north of Agana. They engaged the Guam Insular Force Guard and easily overtook the defenders. Then they advanced towards Piti, where they took the Samei and Marine Barracks. Multiple Japanese landings were then made on Guam, and eventually there was some fighting at Agana's Plaza de Espana. Seeing that the Japanese were so many, Captain McMillan, leading the defenders, called for a ceasefire and would surrender his forces, making Guam the first American territory to fall to the Empire of Japan. It was a brief struggle in which 17 American, Guamanian, and one Japanese died. Back at the Philippines, the Japanese had already landed at Bataan Island and took out its airfield. Now six transport ships carrying 2,000 Japanese soldiers each, with designated landing targets all over northern Luzon, were going to hit. General Homa was sending surprise landings all over North Luzon, knowing full well the American forces were dispersed broadly over the Nine Islands. Homa planned to encircle the American forces, cutting off their line of retreat to Manila. One landing was at dawn, near Apari, to allow for a surprise attack on the airfield at Apari. They captured it unopposed, and in a matter of hours, grabbed Gonzaga and Kamigian Island. With Apari in their hands, the Japanese now had an airfield to launch further airstrikes onto the main island. Another landing force disembarked at Vigan, but this time they were met by some B-17s with a few P-40 escorts. What would be the last coordinated actions of the Far East Air Force amounted to damaging two Japanese transports, the Ogawa Maru and Takeo Maru. They also damaged the destroyer Ruasame, cruiser Naka, and they did manage to sink the minesweeper W-10. But most importantly, they forced some of the landing troops to retreat back to the transports. But these transports would simply land the following day, just four miles south. The troops that did not retreat managed to capture the airfield at Vigan. Douglas MacArthur was livid when he heard reports of the initial Japanese landings, blaming Major General Jonathan Rainwright for his incompetence in MacArthur's planned active defense. Do you remember that planned active defense where MacArthur would just hit the Japanese at the beaches? Not to mention, poor Wainwright would be something like a major scapegoat for most of Douglas MacArthur's faults. Historian John Gordon described MacArthur's reaction to the developing military catastrophe in the Philippines as, quote, delusional. 
MacArthur radioed General Marshall in Washington on December the 10th, asking for, quote, an immediate attack on Japan from the north. There is a golden opportunity existing for a master stroke while the enemy is engaged in overextended air effort. End of quote. On December the 12th, another Japanese surprise landing force came from Palau Island and disembarked on Legazpi. This attack was also a diversion intended to draw out MacArthur's forces, but none came. So they took the city and its airfield unopposed. Tugagario Airfield, just south of Apari, was captured swiftly, and the last major U.S. airfield at Del Monte was now in danger of being captured itself. At this point, Brereton asked for permission to take the remaining 14 B-17s and transfer them to Darwin. MacArthur agreed. At this time, Clark Lee of the Associated Press in Manila began to make reports to the public. One of them stated, quote, The Japanese army is an ill-uniformed, untrained mass of young boys between 15 and 18 years old, equipped with small-caliber guns and driven forward by desperate determination to advance or die. Their .25 caliber rifle and machine gun bullets could not even kill a man. They're no damned good on the ground. End of quote. Yeah, the Americans had not even really got a taste of a real ground battle yet against the Japanese, as these landings were all surprise attacks and took them completely off guard. Homa would soon order his forces in northern Luzon to concentrate on Leganyan Gulf. Soon, the main attack force would land and begin the invasion of Luzon. But you're going to have to wait for the next episode for that one. We are now going to talk a bit about Wake Island. That's about to have a really bad day on December the 11th. Rear Admiral Setebichi Kajioka's Wake Island Invasion Force was a light cruiser, six destroyers, and two transports carrying around 560 marines. And they were going to have a hell of a morning on December the 11th. They were about to run into a small garrison of 450 men led by Marine Major James Devereux. Devereux ordered his six 5-inch coastal guns to bombard the invasion fleet but also ordered his machine gunners to hold their fire until the enemy moved within range of their coastal defenses. The IGN destroyer Hayate took some direct hits from the coastal guns at a distance of 4,000 feet, right under her magazines, causing her to explode and sink within just two minutes. The Hayate had a single survivor and was the first IGN surface ship to be sunk in the war Another coastal gun hit the Yubari several times and four Wildcats managed to hit and sink the destroyer Kisaragi by dropping bombs on her stern, exploding her own depth charges. The Japanese had 407 casualties and were forced to withdraw before the landings even took place. Commander Cunningham shouted out, Send us more Japs! The Japanese licked their wounds returning to the Marshall Islands, 
but they immediately ordered an aerial bombing over the batteries on Pele Island that had done them so much harm. Luckily, Devereux moved the location of the batteries to the east end of Pele to avoid complete destruction of them. The Americans were taking losses left, right, and center, but it's nowhere close to being over. I would like to take this time to remind all of you that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. So please, go subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and help us continue producing this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And if after all that you are still hungry for some history-related content, why don't you go check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel, over at YouTube. It would mean a lot to me. Now the Japanese were stopped for a brief moment at Wake Island, bringing just a bit of hope to the American defenders. However, doom was on its way, and in the following weeks, we will see it play out. Next time, we will narrow our focus on a new area that the Japanese Empire will invade, that being Borneo.